Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to CBS News Roundup ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Coming up, no deal. We mean business, you know. It's time to make a higher wage. Auto workers are on strike. Plus, how old is too old to be a political leader? These people need to know when to leave. And the search for Danilo Cavalcante is over. An escaped murderer is finally captured in Pennsylvania. Hello, I'm Stacey Lynn in Washington. Allison is off. The deadline for Detroit's big three automakers to agree on a new labor contract has come and gone, with no deal on the table. 12,000 members of the United Auto Workers Union are now on strike. President Biden addressed the situation from the White House. Auto companies have uh, seen record profits, including the last few years, because of the extraordinary skill and sacrifices of the UAW workers. But those record profits have not been shared fairly, in my view, with those workers. The bottom line is that auto workers help create America's middle class. They deserve a contract that sustains them in the middle class. More from CBS's Chris Van Cleve. United Auto Workers walked off the job at three plants belonging to the nation's big three automakers. We mean business, you know. It's time to make a higher wage. Facilities in Missouri, Ohio, and Michigan, the first targets of the UAW strike, beginning one minute after their labor contract expired with Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis. It's about getting their share and our share of economic justice. Union President Sean Fain joined workers on the picket line outside the Ford, Michigan assembly plant in Wayne. The cost of labor goes from a vehicle is 5% of the vehicle. They could double our wages and they could not raise the price of vehicles, they would still make billions of dollars. The UAW has been seeking up to a 40% pay hike, while the big three are offering about half that. Other asks include a four-day work week and a return of pensions for hourly employees, non-starters for the companies. Now, the union is strategically striking plants that make popular trucks and SUVs like the Ford Bronco and the Jeep Wrangler. Their plan is if talks continue to be stalled or drag out, they'll hit other plants with very little notice. Now to Chester County, Pennsylvania, where residents can finally rest easy after an escaped killer was captured. CBS Philadelphia reporter Nikki Dementri with the story. The search for Danilo Cavalcante is over. The subject is now in custody. Police are revealing how the massive search came to a dramatic end. Police say a burglar alarm went off within their search perimeter just after midnight. About an hour later, an aircraft using thermal technology picked up a signal and tactical units surrounded Cavalcante as he tried to escape with a stolen rifle. But law enforcement released a canine to hold him. 
He continued to resist, but was uh, forcibly taken into custody. Cavalcante was seen wearing a Philadelphia Eagles football sweatshirt, his face bloodied from a dog bait injury to his scalp. Out of nowhere, everybody started to congregate back by the shed. Jim Martin says he witnessed Cavalcante's capture from outside the farm equipment store where he works. One camouflage trooper had his gun and then they were walking him up and, and they loaded him up. The search for Cavalcante ended about 20 miles from the prison where he escaped after being spotted multiple times in different parts of southeastern Pennsylvania, leaving residents on edge. It was a scary couple days. Now Kathleen Brady says her community can finally relax. Everyone can just exhale finally. We turn now to the 2024 elections and a big announcement this week from Senator Mitt Romney of Utah. He says he won't seek re-election and is calling for a new generation of leaders. Our Ed O'Keefe is at the White House. Senator Romney's decision means Washington's losing one of the few consensus builders left in either party. The former Olympics boss, Massachusetts governor, and two-time presidential candidate says he's retiring as voters are increasingly concerned about the advanced age of office holders. And I think it's time for guys like me to get out of the way and have people in the next generation step forward. Utah Republican Senator Mitt Romney is 76 and would have been well into his 80s if he'd won another six-year term. The issues of the day relate to China, climate change, AI, uh, and a lot of guys in their 80s who know how to deal with those issues. A recent CBS News poll found nearly 8 in 10 Americans might agree, favoring a maximum age for elected officials, with most fearing they might be out of touch or unable to do the job past age 75. President Biden is 80 and would be 86 by the end of a second term. Former President Donald Trump is 77, 82 if he wins and serves a full second term. So what should be the maximum age for office holders? Well, our CBS News poll finds a majority across age groups and parties would cap officials at or before the age of 70. Most members of Congress are younger than 70, but one third of the Senate's over that age and then there are, of course, the two frontrunners seeking to live in this house. And speaking of those trying to live in the White House, after such a messy 2020 election, there's a new report out with some recommendations to help make this one much smoother. The report's by a group of election experts. It includes 24 recommendations across four categories. Legal, media and social media, politics and norms, and tech. The experts are urging courts, lawmakers, and election officials to establish clear rules well in advance. David Becker is with the Center for Election Innovation and Research. He tells us why this is most important. We have candidates who appear to be willing to embrace autocracy, appear to be willing to embrace disinformation and lies in an effort to get elected to office in a way that we haven't seen before. So what can be done? Legislatures and Congress could clarify rules around elections, could standardize some of them across states, and generally reduce potential chaos. The experts say American democracy is under great stress heading into the 2024 election, and these changes need to happen. Meanwhile, the president's son, Hunter Biden, is in big trouble. He was indicted this week on federal gun charges. If convicted, he could face up to 25 years in prison. CBS News senior investigative correspondent Catherine Herridge is following the case. The three felony counts Hunter Biden faces stem from his possession of a handgun in October 2018, identified in court records as a Colt Cobra 38 Special revolver. 
The president's son is accused of making a false and fictitious statement about his drug use on a federal gun form and to a firearms dealer. The third count alleges he did knowingly possess a firearm while on drugs. Tom Dupree is a former senior Justice Department official. How serious are the charges? These are all charges that carry fairly significant potential jail terms. The president's son had previously reached an agreement on the charge of gun possession that avoided prosecution. But that deal, which included misdemeanor tax charges, collapsed. His lawyer insisted today the gun agreement remains valid, saying the evidence has not changed, but the law has. Mr. President! And while the president had no comment about his son, he has long defended him. First of all, my son's done nothing wrong. I trust him. I have faith in him. Coming up, devastating flash flooding in Libya. Some streets were left carpeted in bodies. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Stacey Lynn. The death toll from the devastating flash flooding in Libya just keeps growing as survivors desperately hope to find the bodies of their loved ones in the rubble and debris. CBS's Holly Williams reports in one city over 11,000 are now confirmed dead. Storm Daniel, which killed 15 people in Greece last week, swept across the Mediterranean Sea, causing two dams to burst just outside Derna. Floodwaters broke the banks of the river and smothered entire neighbourhoods in brown silt. Buildings were torn down. Their residents didn't stand a chance. Some streets were left carpeted in bodies. Mustafa Salem said he lost 30 family members in the inundation. People were asleep, he explained. No one was ready. Libya's been torn apart by years of civil war and competing national governments vying for power. But this is a different kind of chaos. Political rivalries may now hamper the rescue effort. Dr. Mohammed Al-Kabisi said the dead are laid out in the corridors of his hospital, over 2,000 so far. Libya's people have survived conflict and violent extremism, but they weren't prepared for a natural catastrophe on this scale. And off to another catastrophe fueled by Mother Nature. Nearly 3,000 are dead from the earthquake in Morocco. CBS's Chris Livesay is there. New video of a wedding celebration erupting into panic. As the shaking sends musicians and guests running for the exits and clutching their children. 
While the powerful quake has passed, the catastrophe is hardly over. Supplies are finally reaching remote areas, says Spanish rescuer Annika Cole, one of the few foreign teams allowed into Morocco. So there's hope that there are people still alive under the rubble. There's hope. But in these crumbled adobe buildings, chances of survival are razor thin. Humanitarian efforts are now focusing on the displaced and the wounded. Of course, the wounds aren't just on the outside, they're on the inside too. And the doctors here tell us that for these kids, playing soccer or playing at all is the best thing they can do to start healing. People crying all the night. We can't sleep. Psychologist Amal Kalai says some children are so scarred, they're afraid to leave their tents. Tarek, just one year old, lost his father. And four-year-old Aya lost her grandmother, aunt, uncle, and cousins. She's learning English. Oh, she have a good, a good Still in a state of shock, Yusuf can barely speak. I was buried for 13 hours, he says. I could hear my father and sister screaming until they died. If I wasn't trapped, I could have saved them. So many children affected by this earthquake, approximately 100,000 according to UNICEF, many of them living in tents or out in the streets. Chris Livesey, CBS News, Teletnia Kup, Morocco. Off to Russia now, where North Korean leader Kim Jong-un and President Vladimir Putin met face-to-face this week, discussing possible military cooperation. CBS's David Martin tells us this, of course, is concerning. Kim Jong-un rode his armored mystery train into Russia to meet Vladimir Putin, but there was no mystery about the message the two dictators were sending. This is our new Cosmodrome, Putin told Kim, and the sight of them touring Russia's newest space launch facility looked like a down payment on a Russian promise to help North Korea develop more powerful missiles that could threaten the U.S. Probably not by coincidence. North Korea launched two short-range missiles just before the visit began. Kim was all ears, asking detailed questions about the diameter of a rocket. The U.S. was all ears, too. Any arrangement that would uh, improve uh, North Korea's military capabilities would be of, uh, certainly would be of significant concern to us. Putin, of course, will want something in return. And what he needs most is help to keep firing artillery in Ukraine at the rate of 10 million rounds a year. Joint Chiefs Chairman General Mark Milley told CBS News Russia can't keep that rate up. Their consumption rates have gone down a lot because their industry is not producing the amounts that they were, you know, previously in years gone by. What does uh, North Korea have that Russia wants? Well, munitions. Um, the, the same calibers and types of munitions that the Russians use are the same types that the uh, North Koreans use. Whatever the details of an arms deal, Kim Jong-un has now clearly thrown in with Russia, promising Putin, quote, full and unconditional support for his, quote, sacred fight against the West. We move on to a story of survival in Turkey. An American researcher was finally rescued after being trapped for 11 days, 3,000 feet below in a cave. Our Rami Innocencio with the happy ending. Just last week, Mark Dickey was barely clinging to life deep in a Turkish cave. Today, in a hospital recovering, doctors are still scanning for what caused a severe internal bleed. But Dickey said he knew the risks. Caving is not inherently a dangerous sport, but you're in a dangerous location. There's this point that you cross, which is kind of like, you get hurt after this and you very well might die, right? Mm. 
He was 3,000 feet underground when he started vomiting blood. What were you thinking? What the hell is going on? I don't know, but I'm probably going to be fine. Okay, I just had a lot of blood come out of me. This is really bad, but I don't know the cause. I don't know why. I must get back to camp right now. His team sent word to the surface that he needed to be rescued, a race against time. Within the next couple hours, uh, it became very apparent that I was not okay. Jessica Van Ord is Mark's partner. I didn't yet know that he was thinking that he was on the verge of death. A multinational rescue effort kicked in. Nearly 200 volunteers and medics flew in, bringing down blood and fluids. Teams from Europe and Turkey were each assigned depth to devise solutions to help Dickie rise further, faster. A stretch taller than two Empire State Buildings. During most of the rescue, Dickie was cocooned on a stretcher, hooked up to an IV and with a doctor always at his side. It took three days to bring him to the surface. Um, it's been one hell of a crazy, crazy adventure. Even after this ordeal, Dickie says it won't keep him from going back down. Why do you love doing this so much? The places that I go, no human has ever been before. The places that I'm getting to are so challenging, so difficult, so remote that the amount of expertise, the amount of knowledge experience um, is, uh, I, I've seen people compare it to when you go down below a thousand meters in cave, it's like climbing Mount Everest. Um, these are the extremes of the world. This is a calm, cool, collected, careful sport. And through that, you can get to amazing places. And back. And back. Coming up. They're calling it a game changer in heart health. A new and less bulky pacemaker will soon be on the market. Two capsule sized devices, much smaller than like a AAA battery. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Welcome back to the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Stacey Lynn. Well, this could be a game changer in heart health. The FDA has approved a new pacemaker that will help millions of people. Vish Sharan is the Divisional Vice President of Product Development at Abbott in Los Angeles. Tell us how this is going to change lives. Oh, thank you so much. It's a really exciting time, and uh, I'm glad I could come here and share with you some of the new technology that we have developed at Abbott. Well, let's talk about that new technology. How is this pacemaker different from all other pacemakers? So cardiac pacing has been in existence for nearly about 60 years, and the system includes a surgery where a physician is uh, treating heart rhythm disorders of a person by implanting an electronic device in the chest of the uh, person who requires this therapy. And then from the chest, there are wires or what we call leads in the industry where it connects from this electronic device into the heart. And generally, there are about two leads which go into the heart and that is to sense and pace or electrically stimulate in the atrium and the ventricle of the heart to bring the person who, require, who has heart rhythm disorders back into a normal, regular uh, rhythm. What we have done is with the technology that we are bringing to market right now, AVAIR DR, which is AVAIR dual chamber, we are able to now eliminate these lead wires and this big 
hockey puck type of a can. It eliminates these two and makes it two capsule-sized devices which uh, get inserted in directly into the right atrium and the ventricle. And then you can sense and pace from these two capsule-sized devices, which are much smaller than like a AAA battery. So that must mean that the surgery isn't as invasive as it used to be, right? Absolutely. That is the biggest change that we're making. The two changes that we bring, which benefit the patient, are you eliminate these complex, large surgeries where you have to cut a pocket in the person's chest, just under the collarbone, you cut a pocket and place a device, which is about the size of, uh, think of it um, as a remote control key fob, one of the larger ones, but a little bit thinner than that. And you eliminate the need for that type of surgery. You also eliminate the need of these wires, which connect from inside the heart to that device. And these lead wires get damaged over time. And uh, also you could have infection around the lead wires or around this electronic can. All of those are eliminated by these very small capsule type devices, which get directly inserted and implanted in the heart. And that is done through a long delivery catheter based approach. And that is typically like technology used to place uh, less invasive medical devices like stents are delivered through a catheter. So similarly, we are now delivering pacemakers through a catheter. And for people that really need pacemakers, this procedure doesn't seem as scary. Absolutely. In fact, uh, earlier this year, I met a patient who ended up having an Avare dual chamber device, part of the clinical trial. And she was a 20-year-old lady who had... uh, a complex condition after a car accident where a heart would stop for a few minutes and uh, she required a pacemaker and uh, she actively chose to enroll in the clinical trial because she is a person who wants to live a normal life. She wants to work out. She wants to go to the gym and having a device in the body, in the chest and wires with it uh, creates a lot of challenges. And uh, of course, this is a uh, applicable to younger people. But also when you look at uh, older people, I also met another person, uh, a 72-year-old lady who does gardening. And uh, she had challenges with a typical pacemaker because she couldn't lift her left arm too high to move her pots. And uh, those types of challenges are all eliminated when you remove that pocket, you remove those wires, and you go to these very small capsule-sized devices, which get directly inserted into the heart. That's a game changer indeed. So it was approved already by the FDA. When should we expect this to be readily available? Yeah, it it was exciting. We did uh, get approval a little bit earlier than expected, and that was because the device was deemed as an FDA breakthrough type of device in medical innovation. And next month, in October, we're going to be starting to bring physicians who are trained and start bringing it to people who need cardiac pacing from October onwards. So it's really close. It's really exciting. It is exciting indeed. Vish Sharon from Abbott, appreciate your time today. Thank you.
Absolutely. It seems everyone knows at least one person right now that's got COVID again. And this week, we got new updated vaccines out from Pfizer and Moderna. The CDC's recommending everyone six months and older get one. On Monday, the FDA approved the updated mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna. Novavax's protein-based vaccine is currently being reviewed. There is an urgent need for alternatives to mRNA-based vaccines, including protein-based vaccines. And so in that regard, we will review such a submission expeditiously. While cases and hospitalizations are up, concern about the virus is down. In a new CBS News poll, just 45% of people say they are worried that they or a family member could get COVID. That's down from 77% in April of 2020. Only 43% plan to get the new booster, and those numbers vary by political affiliation. Many health experts are pushing to have the COVID vaccine considered just like every other shot and recommended every fall like the flu vaccine. Dr. William Schaffner with Vanderbilt University Medical Center says you can get the flu and COVID vaccines in one visit. If that opportunity presents itself and you're up for it, sure, get them together. But if you get them one at a time, please make sure you come back for each of those vaccines. Because it's the best protection for what could be a very active winter. Jared Hill, CBS News, New York. The number of fatal overdoses involving both fentanyl and a stimulant has increased more than 50-fold. In 2010, that number was 235. In 2021, it ballooned to more than 34,000. Usually that means they took them together. Sometimes that can be they took one and were not expecting the other one to be present. UCLA School of Medicine Assistant Professor Chelsea Shelver. That's signaling that there's a population of people who need treatment for both of these substance use disorders at the same time. And that's a challenge. She says, clearly, we need to shift our thinking about the overdose crisis. Coming up in this week's Kaleidoscope, a tough question to ask. Are you thinking of suicide? We take a look at the big disparities in suicidal thoughts and behaviors among youth with oppressed identities. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next, because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. This is the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Welcome to the Kaleidoscope. This week, it's not something we want to talk about, but it is something we must talk about. September is National Suicide Prevention Awareness Month, and the statistics are startling. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among young people 10 to 14 years old, and third for those aged 15 to 24 years old. Dr. Rosie Bowder is a clinical assistant professor from The Ohio State University in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health. We thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Bowder. Thanks so much for having me, Stacy. Clearly, this is terribly troubling. So why are the numbers up so high now? 
There's no one answer for why people die by suicide or why somebody might attempt suicide. The increase in endorsing thoughts of suicide, feelings of hopelessness or helplessness, or even making a suicide plan, while that lets us know that maybe there, there, there is, in fact, an increase in these experiences among our youth. What I also think it reflects is this willingness to be honest and acknowledge that that is that is happening. And the studies have shown that there are some big disparities in suicidal thoughts and behaviors among youth with racial, ethnic, gender, and sexual minority identities. When I see that more youth or perhaps youth that hold certain oppressed identities are endorsing that that those thoughts of hopelessness, helplessness, thinking of suicide, I think it reflects a, a bit of a generational shift in which we're far more comfortable talking about our lived experience which is that critical step in reaching out for help and support. When someone is experiencing thoughts of suicide or is feeling stuck, is feeling helpless, hopeless, the key critical factor is that they have someone around them, whether it's a close family member, a friend, another trusted adult, or even taking advantage of our crisis lifeline. Having someone who can listen and be there of support is absolutely key. Talk a little bit about LGBTQ plus youth in particular. While we're noticing that over the past few years, especially among queer and trans-identifying youth and adults, that experiences of suicidal thoughts and behaviors are increasing, it's really important to remember that a lot of queer folks and trans folks will not go on to die by suicide or even attempt suicide. And In fact, this population, especially queer youth and trans youth, are incredibly resilient. But it's not, like you mentioned, just LGBTQ plus youth where numbers have increased. Teen girls have higher odds of reporting those persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness and considering suicide than teen boys. And also suicides among youth with oppressed racial and ethnic identities. Those are also up compared to white youth. We do see disparities based on other identities that are oppressed within our society. We know that the suicide rate among youth, particularly Black youth and American Indian Alaskan Native youth, is increasing. And we also uh, don't necessarily have the best data for how many LGBT people are dying by suicide, because that's not the sort of data that we get from folks when we're recording suicide deaths at the national level. However, there are some states that just do a better job about getting that information if somebody dies by suicide so that we have an accurate reflection of the magnitude of lives lost that can inform subsequent uh, prevention strategies. And Dr. Gowder, many of these youth might even identify as more than one of these, right? Explain the concept of intersectionality. So oftentimes when people hold an identity such as being LGBTQ, that is not their only salient identity, right? So they might identify as queer, but also Black or queer and Latine. And so the intersection of these identities, which within our society we consider to be minoritized or oppressed, um, means that there's a unique experience of not only navigating that identity within that system, but also navigating connections and care. Obviously, across the board, no matter who is having these feelings and thoughts, knowing the warning signs of suicide is key. 
we do see there can be indicators of distress, right? They're looking for ways to kill themselves. They might be talking about wanting to die or I don't want to feel this pain anymore. They're expressing feelings of helplessness, hopelessness, or perhaps they feel like they're being a burden to others. But I think what's most important is if you're noticing these warning signs, right? Somebody's acting in a way that's not typical for them. One of the things you can do is ask, share some of the things that you're observing, right? Maybe they're isolating, maybe they're withdrawing, or you notice that they're missing work. You can share some of those observations and from a place of understanding and connection say, I'm noticing this. Are you thinking of suicide? Asking somebody if they're thinking about suicide doesn't put that idea in their head. And so when we ask openly, oftentimes if somebody's already thinking or considering suicide, it indicates to them that you're you're okay with asking that question and they can honestly share with you. Another thing that is hugely important is prevention strategies. Dr. Gowder, give us some of those. Well, there are prevention strategies that exist on a continuum. We have levels of primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention. There are prevention strategies that we can incorporate for everyone. And when we think more specifically about LGBTQ folks, more of the individual or person-to-person strategies that can be tailored account for experiences of minority stress or perhaps um not feeling community support as they navigate their identity. Those are ways in which we can tailor what we've established are already uh, evidence-based suicide-specific interventions. So it seems more important than ever now to tailor suicide prevention strategies for these different types of people. How do you think that can be done, especially for our troubled young people? I think there's something to be said about increasing funding for access to affordable, accessible mental health resources, funding for school counselors, um, for folks to have community groups that affirm and celebrate their identity, uh, such as like GSAs, Gay Straight Alliances and high schools and schools. Um, But also, it doesn't necessarily need to be only the something done at the federal level. But I think this really implores communities to support LGBTQ individuals, but collectively almost recognize this responsibility that we have for supporting the well-being of LGBTQ plus people and others with oppressed identities. So our communities as a whole have this responsibility to promote a culture of welcoming, acceptance, and support. Very well said. Dr. Rosie Bowder, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me. Coming up, is Google monopolizing search engines? I'm Googling everything. How often are you Googling stuff on your phone? Like every day, all the time. The latest on the biggest antitrust case in nearly a quarter century. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Stacy Lynn. When you're looking for something online, you Google it, right? It's become so commonplace, and that's what has stemmed the biggest antitrust case in nearly a quarter century. The Department of Justice and more than a dozen states are accusing Google of being a dominating monopoly and illegally shutting out rival search engines. In federal court in Washington, Google on defense. The Justice Department is accusing the company of monopolistic behavior, alleging it abused its power by paying tens 
$10 billion a year to be the default search engine on Apple's iPhones, Samsung Galaxies, and beyond, unfairly keeping the competition like Microsoft Bing and DuckDuckGo at bay. The DOJ says those deals cemented Google's overall dominance, creating a, quote, feedback loop that always turns to Google's advantage. The tech giant hit back, saying the government is trying to limit their ability to do business. Google's chief legal officer, Kent Walker. Is Google breaking the law here? No, we're not. We believe that people use Google because it's helpful. You've never seen more choice, whether that's TikTok or Reddit or Amazon or Expedia. Would you ever change? To where? What else? I'm not. Google claims it's easy to change the default search on your phone. But according to the government, Internet users go to Google for nearly 90 percent of all searches in the U.S. I'm Googling everything. How often are you Googling stuff on your phone? Like 30 times, like every day, all the time. And critics say that very popularity is what makes it nearly impossible for smaller players to actually compete. So the longer they can hang on to that, um, the, you know, the, the, the more dominance they have and the, the, their ability really to keep out other companies. Now, if Google were to lose, it could face penalties or possibly be broken up. And other tech companies like Amazon and Meta, the parent company of Facebook, are watching closely because they could be forced to change the way they do business. Jolene Kent, CBS News, Washington. The iPhone 15 is out next week. Apple held a big event touting all the new bells and whistles, which frankly, I thought were a tad underwhelming. But there are some things you may get geeked out about. Tech contributor Ian Schur with one of them. Apple's changing the charging cables for its iPhones and many accessories over to USB-C, an internationally recognized standard that's actually being mandated by the European Union next year. This upgrade may not seem like a lot. After all, this is just a charging cable. But Apple is positioning it as an opportunity to add new features that allow easier video recording for professionals, as well as standardization that allows you to have just one charging cable for most of your devices at this point. The new phone will also allow you to call AAA in the event of a roadside emergency, even if you're off the grid and don't have access to Wi-Fi or a cell network. So don't forget to bring that new iPhone back to the office because that's where a lot of us are going these days. Here's CBS's Cammie McCormick. Census Bureau numbers show the rate of workers returning to the office is on the rise and the time it takes to commute is growing. Many employers now require workers to show up at the office at least three days a week. The number of remote workers is still three times higher than before the pandemic. Well, this is something fans of this boy band have been waiting on for a long time. Taylor Swift asked a newly reunited NSYNC at the MTV VMAs this week. Like, are you doing something? What's going to happen now? Now we know. band, including Justin Timberlake, has released its first new music since 2002. It's featured on a new trailer for the third Trolls movie, Band Together, which features Timberlake as Branch again and Anna Kendrick as Queen Poppy. The full In Sync song will be released September 29th, but you can already find portions of it on TikTok. Deborah Rodriguez, CBS News. It seems there's nothing Taylor Swift can't do, and now she's being credited for saving movie theaters. 
Sony and other studios have been scrambling to save productions during strikes, mostly by pushing their big-budget movies to later dates. For Sony, that's Ghostbusters Afterlife, another Spider-Man, and a new Karate Kid. They're done, but actors can't promote them yet, which is why Sony's banking on Swift. Welcome to the Eras Tour! Taylor Swift The Eras Tour could gross $200 million when the concert movie opens in theaters next month. The studio's calling it a massive, unexpected rescue, since there's no telling how long these strikes could last. Are you ready for it? Monica Ricks, CBS News. New York Jets quarterback Aaron Rodgers underwent surgery this week for his torn Achilles. He is hoping he can return to play in 2024. In a post with a photo on Instagram, the New York Jets quarterback is smiling with a mask pulled down in full hospital attire. Rodgers says the surgery on his left Achilles tendon went great. Protection breaks down and time runs out. Down goes Rodgers in the second. He was injured on the fourth snap of his debut for the Jets out for the season. Rodgers vowed to rise again in an earlier message, but it's not clear if he'll play next year when he'll be 40. Rogers says thanks to his doctor, he's on the road to recovery. Steve Kathan, CBS News. Well, fall doesn't officially start until next weekend, but really, it is all around us already. Football season is here, some leaves are changing colors, there's pumpkin spiced everything everywhere, and all the Halloween decorations and candy are in stores. And if you're ready to become a ghost or goblin or a vampire... You'll love this story from CBS's Ian Lee. At Forstunstein Castle in Austria, children learn fact from fiction about the original vampire, Vlad Tepes. You may know him as Dracula. This 10-year-old explains he was a count from Romania and he killed his enemies, but he wasn't a vampire because he didn't have fangs. The event, called Draculade, has kids cloaked in capes. And armed with flashlights as they explore the creepy castle. All while Vlad looks down from this 17th century painting. Visitor Andrea Stupit says, I want to educate my children so that they experience history in a lively way. And I think it's great to learn the story of Dracula in such a mystical castle. The man behind the myth lived in this castle in Romania in the 15th century and had a reputation as a cruel ruler. To punish the invading Ottomans, he impaled captured soldiers and left them on the side of the road to his capital, says this historian. With that kind of fame, it's probably best kids scurry after the fictional character instead. Ian Lee, CBS News. And before we wrap up, I need to do my civic duty to remind you that Monday is National Cheeseburger Day, and there are so many cheesy and beefy deals to be had just about everywhere that sells burgers. So while Mondays are usually a struggle, that should help this coming Monday be a bit better. And that's going to do it for the Weekend Roundup. Thanks for listening. As always, the show is online on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. And we want to get your feedback, too. You can drop us a line at weekendroundup at cbsnews.com. Let us know where and how you're listening. The Weekend Roundup is produced at the CBS News Washington Bureau. I'm Stacey Lynn, CBS News. If you like CBS News Roundup, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.
Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.